progress. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a Daily Power Parsha. Today is March 1st, Tuesday, March 1st. Um, and I'm just thinking of some jokes, but we'll, we'll save that for a few days. I got a March 4th joke, which I'm not going to share right now. Book of jokes, or they're all in your head. Yeah, there, there are books, but I don't, I don't necessarily have one. Um, okay, so we have a tremendous Torah portion this week. The Torah portion is Pekude. It's the last parsha of the Book of Exodus, the last section of Exodus. This week in Shul and Synagogue, we're going to say Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazek as we conclude the reading, which is the traditional blessing of strength and encouragement and energy that we recite at the conclusion of a book of the Torah. Each of the five books is concluded with that um, kind of that, uh, that, that, that exclamation, that proclamation, Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazek. So that happens this week. So, you know, on, on, in a very strong way, this culminates. This culminates the, the book and the theme of the book. And, and I want to begin today's conversation before we jump inside with some verses and the technical details with a bit of an analysis of that. Because, you know, if you think about it, and I alluded to this yesterday, the, the book opens with the Jewish people, the 12 tribes, the children of Israel in Egypt. Slavery heats up. It becomes unbearable, right? Backbreaking labor. Decrees of infanticide, you know, God forbid, killing the babies upon birth, throwing the boys into the Nile River. I mean, horrific, horrific um, brutality. Then we have Moses and Aaron and the plagues and the miracles and the Exodus. And that was like the first half of the book. The first bulk of, of the book of, the, of, of Exodus is about slavery and freedom. And then we get the Torah. And then it shifts to conversations about building the Mishkan. And it might feel like a very disjointed book where it begins in one place and it ends in a completely different place. So here's how I want to begin. And I, uh, again, I mentioned, I alluded to this yesterday. It's obviously not a disjointed book. It's not two different books, a tale of two books. No, this is one narrative. And this is a theme that we've discussed before, but bears repeating and mentioning and reinforcing once again. And that is that in life, there are external inhibitors, there are external threats, but in addition to the external inhibitors, the external threats, let's call them pharaohs, there are internal threats and internal inhibitors as dangerous or as limiting. The outside forces are, the inside forces are just as nefarious, if not even more. So you can have a situation where you have essentially a free person who is put in prison. You have a person of um, talent and ability and, and all these wonderful gifts, and the person finds themselves, let's just say unfairly, incarcerated. And now they're no longer able to utilize their abilities. That's what we would call external, um, not, not just challenge, but external um, limitation, external constriction. The constriction, the limitation, the in, oh, uh, the um, being inhibited, the, the the inhibitation, whatever the right word is, it doesn't sound right. Whatever. Anyway, the being inhibited is an external condition in that scenario, and then you have an individual who's absolutely free, externally at least. There's nothing that there's no one and nothing external that is tying that person's hands behind their back. But they themselves are not living authentically, fully, you know, vibrantly because of internal inhibitions. And that is the deeper meaning of Exodus. The deeper meaning of the Exodus is not just getting rid of the external conditions. It's helping address the internal conditions because that's where life is lived. And that's more important than the external stuff. The external stuff can come and go. But the internal stuff is the real stuff, and it's the stuff that's in our control as well. So the question thus is, how do we become really free? Not how do we get out of Egypt. That's the easy question. That's the easy question, easier question. The difficult question, the truly difficult question is, how do we become free inside? How do we free ourselves 
of the negative character traits, the, the ugly um, inhibitors, the, the, the self-doubt, the self-judgment, the judgment of others, the fears, the anxieties, the jealousies, the angers, etc. All of the negative stuff, the negative internal stuff, how do we get rid of that stuff? Much more difficult. Much more difficult. It's easier to rail against Pharaoh as a human rights violator, right? It's easier to rail against the Pharaohs of the world as, oh, you're terrible, look at you, you're a horrible person. Easier, right? Than to deal with the stuff inside. I'm not saying it's easy. I said easier, right? There's still Pharaohs and still individuals that wish to shackle others. And that's a problem in our world as we, as we all know. Current, uh, cur current events included. But the, the long-term question for every person is, how do I become free inside? And this is where the second half of the book picks up. The first half of the book is how to deal with your outer pharaoh. The second half of the book is how to deal with your inner pharaoh. And to deal with your inner pharaoh, it all begins with one sing singular point, and that is purpose and aim and mission and vision. What who am I and what, I, what am I about? What is my mission in life? What is my purpose? Why am I here? Knowing the answer to that question with absolute clarity and then doing and then putting in the effort to figure out, okay, so now that I know what my mission is, so how do I get there? What are the strategies that I need? What, what are the pieces I have to put into place to get there? Doing that work or at least focusing on that is how we become internally free. It's when we're not sure why we're here, if we should be here, if we shouldn't be here, what am I doing today, what am I not doing? It's when we have that lack of clarity that the internal shackling becomes that much more, um, that much more to be, I would say, to be expected. It's when we're not sure what we're doing that we become handcuffed internally even more. Now, it doesn't mean that if we know what our mission is, that suddenly we'll have no fear and we'll be fearless and, and we won't have any jealousy or anger. It's not a magic solution. But it certainly helps guide us on the way toward our mission, especially, especially if we're so mission-oriented that we don't have time to think about all of our internal flaws and our internal you know, doubts and internal questions because we're so mission-oriented. Like the famous story we've taught many times, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai, who on his deathbed was crying. This was the great, the great sage, the great leader of his time, the rabbinic scholar who lived at the time, through the time of the second temple's destruction, and he's crying on his deathbed. This is after the temple was destroyed. And his students ask him, they're around, surrounding his bed, and they say, why are you crying? And he says, you know, I'm about to pass away, and there are two paths in front of me. One path, essentially heaven and hell. And I don't know... I don't know which direction, which path they will take me on. That's what he says. And the students, you know, students were wondering, I mean, is that, is that really the case? I mean, is that... And, and the question has been asked by the commentators. Like, was he really not sure which path he's going to be led on? This guy was a tzaddik. He was a righteous person. What kind of question is that? And the answer is, the way the Rebbe explains it in a very novel and powerful... It's almost like once you hear this explanation, you, you never question the story again. The Rebbe explains this as somebody, as this scenario, as an individual, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai, who lived his life so on, um, on point, so focused on mission, that he never took a personal assessment. He never took time off to say, where am I holding in life? How am I doing? You know, am I achieving my, my plans? Am I achieving my goals? He was living life to the fullest. When I, I don't mean he was skydiving off, uh, you know, uh, base, base jumping off of uh, off a mountain. What I mean, he living life to the fullest spiritually. He was dedicated, invested each and every day to filling every moment with meaning, teaching Torah, doing mitzvot, connecting others with God. That was his 24-7. To think about, am I righteous? Am I not righteous? Am I a tzaddik? Am I not a tzaddik? Who has time for that if there's a mission? It's like a firefighter, just to give another example, a firefighter just rescued a family. God forbid, right, God forbid there's a fire. The firefighter rescues a family. Thank God, rescues the family from the fire. And then you interview the firefighter. You're such a hero. 
You know what every firefighter says? Every firefighter, without exception, every every heard a hero. I, I don't know. I'm not a hero. Did my job. I did what was needed. Rabbi Yochanan Zaki is like, am I a tzaddik? Am I not a tzaddik? Am I a hero? Am I a spiritual hero? Are they going to write about me in the history books? How narcissistic do you need to be to think about that? Right? Here's a guy who was living his life invested in God, in Torah, in the Jewish people, in, in, in humanity, in goodness and kindness, and so on his deathbed. He starts thinking about himself. The last moments of his life, self-reflection. And in that moment, he cries. And so here's the point. When we are mission-oriented, purpose-oriented, purpose-focused, focused on purpose, so that doesn't automatically cure all the inner stuff that we deal with. But it goes a long way in at least distracting us from thinking about that stuff too much, right? It's like, okay, we have a mission. It's like, I know, I have clarity, like, this is what I need to do. I have, these are, these are the issues, these are the challenges, these are the opportunities, this is what I'm doing. I, the fact that I don't know if I'm perfect, and I don't feel so kind, and I don't feel so happy, and I don't, who has time to focus on that stuff when we have clarity on the mission? So here's my, my, my point. The beginning of the book of Exodus and the end of the book are very compatible and complementary. The first half of the book talks about how to defeat your outer Pharaoh. The second half of the book talks about how to defeat your inner Pharaoh. And at the core of defeating your inner Pharaoh, and we know how to defeat the outer Pharaoh, miracles and plagues, I mean, that helps. But how to defeat the inner Pharaoh, there's no substitute. That's where the work comes in. Do you notice how how many Torah portions are dedicated to building the Mishkan? Do you ever wonder why? Do we have to know exactly the the square ammo uh, ama footage, so to speak, of, of the Mishkan and exactly what materials was gold, copper hooks, silver plated bottoms and copper plated top. And this was really that much detail. Like, can, can we just, what, what was is what was like, we need to know all the details. You know how many hundreds of verses are dedicated to this? Literally five Torah portions, Truma, Tetzaveh, Kisisa. Well, part of Kisisa is the golden calf, but half of uh, Kisisa, Vayakal and Pekude. Five Torah portions out of 11. The book of Exodus has 11 Torah portions. Five out of 11 are about the Mishkan. Five of 11. That's uh, almost 50%. My math, I can't do the calculation in my head. It's almost 50%. That's a lot. That's a lot of verses. We're talking about probably 400 verses plus of the Torah dedicated to constructing the Mishkan. Why? You know why? Because the Mishkan is all about how to set up our lives to be free. And not to be free in some sort of superficial, you know, self-empowerment way, but to be free of our inner challenges, inner stuff, distractions, so that we can focus on mission. It's about creating that clarity. It's, I have my ark set up. I have my menorah set up. I have my shulchan set up. I have my kir set up. Mizbeach set up. I have all the items set up for my success. I have this mitzvah, that mitzvah, this goal, the other goal, Torah, right? I have, I have things laid out clearly. And of course, the commentaries and the works of Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy go a very long way in describing what all of the pieces of the Mishkan mean for our internal spiritual lives. We don't have, now is not the right time to do that dive. Maybe another day this week, we'll kind of reflect and go through at least highlights on, on that in, in a practical way. But here's the point. The point is that building the Mishkan is about setting up ourselves internally to be free, to be empowered, to be mission-oriented, purpose-driven, and focused on making this world a home for God, which is literally what the, what the Mishkan was. And the message here, then, is very important. It's that one cannot truly be free unless one is, and I, you know, it's, it's, this is going to show my rabbi bias. One cannot truly be free unless one is dedicated to a higher mission, a mission high, greater than themselves. And in this context, in a Torah context, it's a mission that's, de- that's being dedicated to a divine mission. You know, the, the more neutral way to say it would be higher mission. That's kind of like the universal way to say it. But a more Torah way of saying it is divine mission. So you can get out of Egypt. You can be free of pharaohs. But without having a higher divine mission, you're not really free. And, and again, and you can be 
You can know the dimension and still be stuck. That's true. But that gives, that gives a, a, a direction at least and hopefully a, a clear goal and clear motivation so that one can move away from the stuff that holds us back. There's no shortcuts in life, which is why there's literally five Torah portions dedicated to building the Mishkan. But the message here is that the, there is, there's a synchronicity. There's a, symbiota, a symbiosis, if you will, between the first half and the second half of the book. It's all about freedom, but different forms. Exter- being free from external inhibitors and being free from internal inhibitors, which is the most relevant, the most difficult, the most important in many cases. Okay, that's all by way of introduction, which doesn't specifically speak to today's reading, but it speaks to the general theme that we're wrapping up this week. Okay, questions, comments? Does this make sense? Yeah, but yeah. We also kind of put it in the perspective that each day or so we have our own personal exodus, right? We're supposed to. Yeah. 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 Every day, as our sages say, as you correctly say, every day we're supposed to. Well, the language of our sages see ourselves as though we're going out of Egypt, but it's not like, you know, envision the exodus. It's more of like, what am, it's, it's a call to action. What am I doing today to become a little bit more free? And it's not just looking at the outside stuff, it's looking at the inside stuff, which is why the exodus is a daily occurrence. In the, in the, as the Rebbe would put it very often, even in a positive way, this is true. It's not only if we're stuck in negativity every day we got to break out. It's even if we're not stuck in negativity, even if we've climbed the mountain, great. Tomorrow, the mountain that you climb today, tomorrow, that's your limitation. In other words, your starting point is where you're at, but that doesn't reflect where you can go. So where you're at relative to where you can go constitutes the current limitation. The status quo equals a limitation because it's where you're at as opposed to where you can be at. And so the point is there's always another mountain to climb. There's always the next frontier internally, spiritually, universally, etc. And that is what drives us, which is why we say the Shema and include references. The third paragraph of the Shema is about the Exodus. We include references to the Exodus multiple times a day because every day we need to get out. Judaism can rightly be seen as an Exodus-obsessed religion. Like we're so obsessed with the Exodus. Exodus, Exodus, Exodus. As Cindy Brady once said, to paraphrase, right? She said, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. But I'm just saying like, Little child, it's not easy. But the point is that like Exodus, 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 it's all about the Exodus all the time because that's real life. It's not, it's not a once upon a time, it's us. <coughs> it's our Exodus, as you said, every single day. And again, it's the, it's the getting out of the stuff that's outside, that's valid. It's the first half of the book, that's very valid. Actually, it's more, it's less than half the book. Shmos ve'era bo b'shalach, four portions, four, four parshiot, four Parshas are about the external stuff. Then there's Yisro Mishpatim that are about Sinai and the mitzvot. And then you have the last five, which are about building the Mishkan and the golden calf stuck in there as well. So the minority, four out of 11, are dealing with the external Pharaoh. The other stuff, it's all about identifying your purpose. That's Sinai. Identify your purpose. Right? Get a clear vision of your life, of what, what, what that purpose looks like, and then building it out. Okay, all right, let's jump inside. We have um, a reading, reading number three, I believe we're up to. Just to recap, we began the portion, I'm going back to one now. We, we began the portion, Pekude, with the, the audit. The audit is what came in and what was it used for. And let me just clarify, which um, donation items came in and what were they used for? So the Torah recalls the gold and the Torah talks about the silver and the Torah talks about the copper and it talks about what these things were used for, what the silver was used for, what the copper was used for, the gold, it doesn't mention, but I mean, I think we kind of know what it was used for. And then it talks about the wool, all the materials, the fabric, if you will, that was used to create the garments. And so that was the end of the first reading. Second reading, we talked about actually how the garments were crafted and how they were made and how they were sewed and how they were, how they were essentially, uh, yeah, created. And now we're up to reading three.
And in the reading three, we continued the discussion about how the clothes were made. It's the clothes, what, what's the cliche? It's the clothes that make the man. Um, in a very real way, this is apparent and evident in the garments of the priests. And again, I, I am very tempted, although I don't have the material right now on the tip of my tongue, very tempted at some point this week, perhaps, to break out some mystical conversation about the meaning behind each of the garments, the symbolism, because everything is symbolic, obviously. I mean, on one level, it's divine will. God says a robe, a hat, the belt. Okay, that's what God wants. That's what God, God sets the uniform, that's the uniform. But aside from it being God's will, there's also symbolism, which is discussed at length by the commentators. So maybe we'll get to it. All right, let's, uh, let's pick it up here. Exodus chapter 39, verse 22. Here we go. And he made the robe. And he, of course, refers to Betzalel, who is the chief artisan, along with Ahliov, his, his, the, sec, the, 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 the partner of the, the, the other head, as well as, obviously, the many, many, many people that actually participated with their hands in all of this. So he made the robe of the aphod, the work of a weaver, completely of blue wool. The aphod was that essentially long robe. And the opening of the robe was turned inward like the opening of a coat of armor. That means by the neck, it was folded inward. Not, not a collar that folds out, it was folded in. Its opening had a border around it so that it should not be torn. Look at this, a little advice to the garment industry. Right? If you want to preserve collars, turn, turn, the, uh, turn the seams inside. And they made on the bottom hem of the robe, as we know from a few weeks ago, they made pomegranates. These are decorative items. Pomegranates of blue, purple, and crimson wool. Twisted. Twisted wool. And they made bells. There were two things, pomegranates and bells. I know I said this only a few weeks ago, but I'm going to do it again. This was the first instance of... Bell bottoms. I think, yeah, I think everyone heard me say that a few weeks ago. Anyway, bell bo- bells at the bottom of this, of this uh, aphod, of this, uh, no, I'm sorry, me'il. It's the me'il, it's the robes, not the aphod. The me'il, yeah, me'il. They made the, be- the bells at the bottom of pure gold, and they placed the bells in the midst of the pomegranates all around. On the bottom hem of the robe in the midst of the pomegranates. Now, there's two ways to understand in the midst of the pomegranates. Either there were these fabric pomegranates with bells inside, or pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, bell, alternating. And that's what it means in the midst of the pomegranate. It means between two pomegranates was a bell. Between every two pomegranates was a bell. You could also say between every two bells was a pomegranate. But nonetheless, that's the way the Torah describes it. This is the approach of Rashi. Rashi offers that it's not, it's not that the bells were in the midst of the pomegranates, literally, like there was a, a pomegranate design with a bell inside, like a fabric-coated bell, essentially. No. Rather, in the midst of the pomegranates means that they were alternating one, 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 etc. The Rebbe has a beautiful insight on this, which I believe I shared a few weeks ago, that um, wh- why is it, why is it that um, there needed to be bells altogether? So the explanation is so that, uh, you know, to announce the high priest's arrival. Yeah, to, to make some noise. All right, so why do you need to make some noise? It's like knocking, it's like knocking on, the, on the door before you go to the king's chamber. So you go into the serve God, so you should make a little noise, you know, because FYI, even though God doesn't need that reminder, whatever, nonetheless. Okay, that's one explanation, classic explanation. Reb explains a little bit more than that. It's not just to announce the arrival, but also symbolically to include everyone. The bells make noise, including those people that make noise when you introduce them to spirituality. It's like, ah, I don't know if I like this, right? Like the noise, like the roller coaster, right? Think about a roller coaster. People that ride roller coasters all the time probably shout a little less than people on the first time in a roller coaster. It's like, this is terrifying. I can't believe somebody convinced me to do this, right? The shrieking is a sign of not being so accustomed to it. Um, Right, somebody who's not accustomed to a lavish meal will be like freaking out, like, oh my gosh, look what they're serving. Where somebody who's very used to it is like, obviously I get I eat this every day. Um, and same thing is true spiritually. The bells represent the noise made by someone who's not accustomed to be in spiritual places. The high priest was meant to represent everyone, and that also is the meaning of the pomegranates, as the Talmud says, even those who are not yet perfect tzaddikim still have enough mitzvot, still have a, are filled with mitzvot, like a pomegranate is filled with seeds, i.e. the pomegranates represent 
the mitzvot that are found even by those that are not yet tzaddikim. In other words, like you and I. So the point is that everybody is represented, and this was demonstrated with the decor here. Let's continue. A bell and a pomegranate, the bell and a pomegranate all around the bottom, all around on the bottom hem of the robe to serve as the Lord had commanded Moses. In other words, the garment was made per the command. And they made the linen tunics, the works of the work of a weaver. This was like the shirt for Aaron and his sons. And he made the cap of linen and the glorious high hats of linen. Look at that. The, hat, the caps and the glorious high hats. The glorious high hats. What a name. What a name. Um, and I, I just try to figure out, is that a good name for a band or for a horse in the Kentucky Derby? Glorious high hats. I'm just like, what would be that? Like, what's, what's the right? Anyway, and or maybe a hat store. I know there's um, the one by Pond City Market is called Gorin Brothers. Maybe it should be called Glorious High Hats. I, I, I don't know. Maybe. And the linen pants of Twisted Fine Linen. They also made that. And they made the sash. The sash is the gartel. You know what a gartel is? You ever see me on Shabbos with that black belt? No. No karate was harmed in the, in the, in the acquisition of that black belt. That's just a, uh, just a belt that's worn traditionally. So they also had a belt back in the day. The Kohanim did the priesthood. The sash was made of Twisted Fine Linen. And blue, purple, and crimson wool of embroidery work, of embroidery work as the Lord had commanded Moses. Everything was done as God had commanded Moses. And they made the show plate. The show plate is that sits in Hebrew. It's the forehead plate, the holy crown of pure gold that wasn't actually a crown, but it served in that kind of like head glorifying capacity, if you will made of pure gold, and they inscribed upon it an inscription like the engraving of a, of a seal. And what did it say? Kodesh Lashem, holy to the Lord. Kodesh Lashem. And they placed upon it a cord of blue wool to place over the cap. No, if you noticed a few verses ago, it said they made the cap of linen and the glorious high hats of linen. What was, what's the difference? So the regular Kohanim, the regular priests, wore the glorious high hats of linen. They wore the larger more puffy hats. The high priest wore the cap of linen. So think about the difference between, I don't know, a baker's hat versus like a little, you know, a little, little cap action. So who wore the cap? The high priest. Why do you wear a cap? Well, I, I don't know, but I mean, he wore a cap because God said to wear a cap. But it, 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 functionality-wise, it also helped because when he was wearing the forehead plate, so how did the forehead plate stick to his forehead? I mean, it wasn't like double-sided tape. That would be at some point painful and not effective. They actually put, as we're reading over here, a cord of blue wool as a, like a cord, right? And that went over the cap, right? It went over the cap and then there were two along the side as well that tied all in the back and that kind of kept it as like over, over his cap, around okay. his head, and that kept it secure to his head. All right, so, and again, that was done, uh, uh, there was a cord of blue wool placed over the cap from above as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, here we go. This is it. This is it. All the work of the Mishkan of the Tenth of Meeting was completed. They did it. We're reading now. This is it. They built it all. The children of Israel had done it. That's it. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so had they done. That's a powerful verse. That means mission accomplished. They got it right. They built everything. You wanted an ark. You got an ark. A menorah, you got a menorah. You wanted a, a showbread table, you got that. You wanted an inner altar of gold, boom. An outer altar of copper, done. A kira wash basin, done. You want oil for the anointing, done. Incense, spices for the incense to burn the incense in the inner altar, done. You wanted an actual structure, the mishkan, the curtains, the tapestries, done. A retaining courtyard wall with posts and, and linen around it, done. Pegs and ropes to hold everything, done. Sockets, done. Garments, done. Everything was done. I'm just repeating it again because, you know, the Torah is, I just, I'm channeling my inner, you know, repeating the Mishkan. <laughs> no one can get enough of this stuff. All right, let's now go back. So this is a monumental verse right here. Yeah, all the work was done. And you know, notice how many times it says done in the same verse. All the work was completed. Okay, that's also done. They had done it. 
according to, according to what God told Moses, so, they, so had they done. I mean, literally saying the same thing three times, but I guess the emphasis is on it being done and done correctly, like God said, etc. Let's now go back, go back, go back, and let's, let's turn Rashi's commentary on, so to speak. Let's, uh, let's toggle it. Um, Rashi says the glorious hi-hats. It's not the, literally, it's the glory of the hi-hats, but do the hi-hats really have their own glory? No, they were glorious hi-hats. That's what Rashi clarifies. Um, look at this. Rashi gets into the cord of blue wool that was securing the, um, the show plate, right? The show plate had a cord of blue wool to place over the cap. So Rashi explains, and by means of threads, he would place them over the cap like a sort of crown. Right? It's impossible to say that the show plate itself was over the cap. The show plate itself was on the forehead. It wasn't over the, it was on top of the cap because we'd learned in Zavachim, which is the Talmud, that his, the Kohen Gadol's hair was visible between the show plate and the cap where he would place the tefillin. Oh, look at this. You think you got a picture of the, of the high priest? Uh-uh. Add a pair of tefillin on that. Listen to this. He would wear a hat, a cap, right? Then he would wear tefillin here. Tefillin, you know, the weight, I'll just give a quick uh, a tefillin placement visual here. Oh, hold on. Olia's here. Oh, hey, Olia. One second. Hey, Olia, I hope you weren't waiting too long. I just noticed that you were in the waiting room. Apologies. No, no worries. A couple minutes. Okay, okay. Sorry. Um, so we're talking now about the, about the high priest. So basically, here's how it worked. Uh, or how, here's how it works with tefillin. Tefillin is worn. The Torah says to put on tefillin between the eyes. Now, you will not find somebody who wears tefillin right over here, right? Not happening. It's not a thing. Tefillin is worn at the top of the head, in the center, right? Not this way, not that way, in the center. The box is in the center, between the eyes. So aligned, you know, whoop, right, right here. And it's put with the front of the box, it's supposed to be the hairline. Now, that's a trick question, because where's the hairline? Because in life, sometimes, you know, it can go a little bit back, 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 back. It's like, you know, it sounds like a baseball home run announcement. Back, 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 back to the wall. It's gone. So, but that's the way it is. So, you, got, you go by where the hairline was originally and whatever. So, the point is that the tefillin box should be centered, this, you know, centered in the head. And then not too far back, not too far front. You're not supposed to wear tefillin like jutting out on the forehead. It's, again, right where that line is. That's where the front of the tefillin and then it moves back. So what we're suggesting here, what Rashi's describing based on the Talmud, is a, a quick depiction, description of what the high priest looked like on the head. So he was wearing a, a, a white linen cap that was smaller. It wasn't like a dominating cap. It was like a, a linen cap. And it, it ended at some point before the tefillin, before the head tefillin. So you had a cap back here. I mean, I guess just think of it like a big kippah type thing. And then you have uh, the tefillin here. And then under, right underneath the tefillin, you had the, the, the forehead plate. That's a lot of hardware to juggle on the, on the noggin. I'll tell you the fa fact. This is, this is facts right here. Um, my bar mitzvah, so the Chabad custom is that bar mitzvah, and many others do this as well, that uh, about two months before the bar mitzvah, the young man will start putting on tefillin as a practice because the obligation kicks in when you turn 13. But uh, that's, you don't necessarily want to start it then because it, it just takes some time to get used to. It can feel a little awkward. So you move up that training, the practical hands-on tefillin training, to about, about eight weeks before the bar mitzvah. Um, so I remember the first time I put on tefillin. Oh, man, I thought that thing was going to go flying off. I mean, it's like, it, you're just like, it's this weight on your head. And yes, there are straps around the side that kind of keep it on your head. There's also the one on the arm. But that's a little bit, that's another issue. The one on the arm, you know, there's a box in the arm, and then you wrap it seven times or three times on the top of the arm, seven times on, on, the, on, the, on the main, I don't know, whatever, whatever this part of the arm is called, and then you wrap it around the hand, you know, depending on how tightly you wrap it, suddenly your arm turns purple. These, these are all like growing pains of our mitzvah boy. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't feel my fingers. Like Shalom, I remember Shalom was like the recent bar mitzvah boy. He's like, is it? Nor I'm like, no, 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 you're tying it too tight. Like let it like <laughs> release, it, release it a little bit because otherwise it can get too crazy. So the arm has its own drama as a, as a young man, but the head, oh, I remember going back. I remember, so I, my bar mitzvah was in 1992. 
Some of you have seen the picture of me with the Rebbe, 1992. By the way, the anniversary, 30-year anniversary of the Rebbe's stroke was yesterday, the 27th day of, of, of Adar. Um, and my bar mitzvah was about one month before that. Anyway, be that as it may, the, um, I, I remember this because it was around the time of the, of the Winter Olympics in 1992. Was that Lillehammer? Does anybody remember that? Lil, um, Lil, was it Lillehammer? Am I making up a, a place in the world? You're right. Was it? I, Calgary was 88. I re, okay, look, I'm a Winter Olympics guy, just whatever. Just saying. Happens to be. I remember at Calgary 88, I'm like, wow, in four years, I'll be bar mitzvah. And then I remember in, four, in, in, in 1992, when it was my bar mitzvah, I'm like, oh my, I hope by the next bar mitzvah, I hope I, by the next Olympics, like my head will be used to this tefillin. But the good news is it got used to it. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff. No, that was literally a, a thought. Like at some point, I'll get used to this, right? Because also in the Chabad tradition, as you've probably noticed, we wear fedoras. I mean, unless you're wearing a talit over your head, we always have double coverings when we pray. So the kippah is one, right? Kippah is one. Yeah, and then either we wear a hat, like a fedora, or a talit prayer for married men. Um, at least that's our custom. So as a bar mitzvah boy, as an unmarried young man bar mitzvah boy, so you wear a fedora. So you're balancing. Okay, I'm just saying like the high priest, balancing on the head, balancing a fedora, which is also a new experience, tilted back at an angle because you got your tefillin here. You can't wear it normally like around your head. So it's tilted back and you got this thing on your head. You got straps coming out. Your arm is turning purple and blue, right? You've cut off all circulation to your wrist. You can't feel anything at that point and you're balancing. I'm not quetching. I'm just trying to say this in a humorous way. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that goes on, but the good news is everyone makes it and everyone you know, eventually becomes normal and natural. The high priest had to balance another element. He got the hat balanced back, right? Almost like the fedora, but like kind of back. He's got the tefillin, and then he's got the forehead plate to boot. He's got the extra third item, but he's the high priest. He should be able to handle that. Anyway, and that's what the tzitz was like. Okay, back inside, all of that was a very elaborate way of describing, perhaps, the experience. Okay, this is a very long Rashi for this securing of the tzitz. I don't know that I want to get into it. All, etc. Rashi says on this last verse, the children of Israel had done the work according to all that the Lord had commanded, etc. In other words, the people did <coughs> everything that God had asked of them. They did it perfectly and completely. And so, my friends, I do wish to reiterate something I mentioned. That takes us to the end of the reading for today. But I do want to reiterate something that I mentioned, I don't know, maybe a week or two ago. The idea that we have a tale of two mishkans, a tale of two tabernacles. There's the tabernacle in the sky and the tabernacle on the ground. And what, what in the world am I talking about? I'm talking about the vision of the mishkan and the implementation of the mishkan. So in a meeting, you can create the perfect vision for a company. Right? You can create, oh, this, this company, this organization is going to look like this. This is the vision. This is what it's going to do. Or this is the product that we're going to build. Oh, it's going to look perfect. And then there's actually the way it plays out. And it's not always the same. So the Torah is telling us two points. Number one, they built it according to the vision. They didn't deviate from the vision. They didn't create their own vision. They didn't say to God or Moses or Betzal or Aliyah, you know what, we're gonna, we, you want it this way, but I don't know, we can't do it that way. We're going to do it this way. None of that happened. They built it as they were commanded, which itself, in and of itself, is a very laudable thing. It's very praiseworthy that they did that. That's number one. Point number two is that this, the building itself, the construction itself, the manufacture, maybe that's better, the manufacturing itself takes up hundreds, takes up also a hundred plus verses, at least a hundred verses to remind us that it's not just a vision that's holy, but it's the implementation. That is holy. Maybe, not maybe, I'm just saying that to be tentative, but that's the holiest part of the experience. It's easier to have a vision than to implement it. It's easy to have vision, relatively. I mean, it's not easy, easy, but it's easier than actually getting it done. The main achievement is in getting it done. What does it say? The path to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah, good intentions are a dime a dozen. 
Good intentions, vision, healthy vision, profound vision, all that is nice. But it's the actual implementation. It's the actual building that is magical. And so the Torah tells us two things. Number one, this is how it was built. It was built according to the vision. And number two, they actually, do, they actually did it. They actually built it. And even if it's not exactly, exactly, it's never going to be as pristine as the vision. They still built it. It's better to build something that's not 100% perfect than remain in a state of vision and not build anything at all. And I think that's the final piece that I'd like to mention today, and that is about action. About action. It's always, it's always um, better to jump in and start moving forward than holding back and waiting for that perfect alignment of whatever it is, of the stars. Because that may never happen. It may never be perfect. Life is not about perfection. That's why we're not created to be tzaddikim. Life is about moving. And so I want to conclude, I think I've said that a few times already, but I want to conclude with another visual. Imagine a small child, a little, little child, who's learning how to walk. A toddler who's, who's toddling. I don't know what that means, but maybe it means like, you know. And the, the, the toddler's learning how to walk. And first step is, before the first step, the first stage, if you will, is standing up. And they usually... You know, children usually hold onto something and they stand up. They hold onto furniture. Like, you know, they, I'm sure Fisher Price creates like little tables. I know they do, right? Little table, they can hold on and stand. That's step one. And then they start shuffling around said table and they, whoop, and then they fall. And thank God they're close to the ground and hopefully it's soft so that it's not, it's not too painful. And then at some point they're ready to take a step and they take the one step and it's, or the first, the first thing is they kind of balance on their own without holding and then they fall and then maybe they take like a tentative step and then they fall. And then at some point they're ready to start the process of actually learning how to walk and put one foot and then another foot. And the way parents will typically do that is they'll encourage their child, they'll stand a little back and encourage their child and put out their arms and say, come here. And call the child, and the child takes a few very, you know, faltering steps and halting steps and whatever is the right word for that. And cautious, the, cautious steps and, you know, and, and, and insecure, unsecure, insecure steps and might fall. And then the child will get confident, not only confident, but get the ability to actually get a walk to the parent and you know let's say the parent is three steps back and the child takes step one and step two and as the child is about to reach a destination very often the parent will slide back and then the child takes some more steps and then the parent will slide back i'm out of space with my wall here and keep on sliding back and can you imagine what the child is thinking i put in all this effort to hug you and all you're doing is pulling back What's going on here? And the message is powerful. This experience, at least as understood by the parent, not yet by the child, this experience is not about reaching the parent. It's about learning how to walk. It's not about reaching the parent and getting a hug. It's about learning how to walk. Life is not about necessarily reaching God and reaching perfection. That will do at 120. That, that's going to happen at some point. This is about learning how to walk. And learning how to walk means that the goal gets bigger, gets broader. The vision gets, right, is that, is that the mountains get higher and higher and higher as we climb. So we're never reaching the top. We're always reaching a point where we realize, oh, it looks like the mountain just moved. It looks like the destination is even higher. Life is about growth. And growth means constantly challenging ourselves, constantly challenging ourselves to increase and enhance. We're not meant to be tzaddikim. If we became a tzaddik, what will we do tomorrow? Imagine, imagine if today you, you attain perfection. Uh-oh, now what? What's on the agenda for tomorrow? It's not about being perfect. It's about learning how to walk. It's about growing. It's about moving. It's about movement. Every single day, movement, movement. And that's created precisely by the fact that we're not perfect. There's always somewhere, is it always another mountain to climb, always another element of progress to be achieved. There's always more because we're not perfect.
So we're never going to reach the vision, the perfect vision, but we're going to keep on building this every day. Iterate, iterate, iterate. Not until we get it right, but until we're walking. And then we're still trying to get somewhere. Where we get to, hopefully, is, is a good place. But it's all about walking. Now, why are there tzaddikim in the world? First of all, there are very few. Very few what we would call legitimate tzaddikim. Why are they there? I don't know. I guess to show us what theoretically that perfection looks like. And to, of course, assist everyone else and kind of provide encouragement and guidance, of course. But for us, it's about moving. It's about the movement. It's not about the goal. I mean, it's redefining the goal, right? The goal is not the destination. The goal is the journey. So let's enjoy the journey. Let's keep on building this Mishkan. All right. Thank you for joining me today. Questions or comments? Okay. You guys are easy. What can I say? Easy crowd. It was a nice overview, positioning everything. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. Because it's easy. Because it's easy to fall into the into like the the very you know the the yeah. Because today was about some of the garments, which we already know about from a few weeks ago. The Torah portion of Tetzava detailed all these garments exactly the same. But in in Tetzava it was this is what you should make. Today it was and he made. But that's the only difference. Instead of make the meal with the bells, with the pomegranates, it's today was, and he made the meal, blue robe with the pomegranates and the bells. So, but it's, so I, I wanted to take this opportunity to kind of take a step back. And because today we did finish with that verse, it was, and everything was done. So now like, okay, let's understand. Number one, what does that mean? Is it done? Are we ever done? And that was the last thing that I mentioned, but also to understand how this fits in with the first half of the book and that, uh, that co-joining together. So hopefully a few of these themes um, made sense. Uh, Sarah says, Rashi's daughters wrapped um, tefillin. Yes, that is, that is correct. Yes, that is correct. So nowadays, traditionally, women do not wrap tefillin, but it's not a prohibition. It's more of just a, I don't know if it's a custom even. It's just kind of um, women aren't obligated in tefillin. It's not an obligation. So therefore, most women do not do it. Um, but Rashi Dajah did it. Oh, oh, along those lines, another important thing, a difference between nowadays and back in the day. Back in the day, men, at least for sure men, um, used to wear tefillin, like the high priest and others, and not even the high priest, but in general, tefillin was worn the entire day. They would put it on in the morning, and the whole day they would be wearing tefillin. Can you imagine? The whole day in, in tefillin. Yeah. Why did that change? It changed, traditionally it changed because people can no longer retain their focus. One of the, one of the um, necessary elements when wearing tefillin is that you are aware that you're wearing tefillin. Kavana, what we're doing, it's going to tie into a little bit tonight's class um, and Thursday's class, the meditation from Sunday. Part of uh, Jewish mindfulness is an awareness vis-a-vis the mitzvot. And when wearing tefillin especially, one is not allowed to have any hesachadas. That means a distraction, of, uh, a mental distraction. So back in the day, at least what we've heard is that they were able to stay focused. Nowadays, hello, <laughs> are you kidding me? Can't stay focused. That's why we just wear tefillin just for the morning prayers. Because we hope that at least for the morning prayers... We can stay focused and know that we're doing a mitzvah. We do a mitzvah while we do a mitzvah, right? We're wearing the tefillin while we pray. So kind of like combining holy activities. And then as soon as we're done, we take it off. And then we go on to the rest of our day. That's it. Now, is the goal, should a goal be to wear tefillin the whole day? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe ideally a goal. But that's not. That's not... You mentioned to us in the past that some men or people in general uh, chant some of the prayers to themselves, so like when they're just going around their daily right, or, yeah, some type of correct, yeah, yeah, either reviewing right. uh, Torah by heart, like Mishnayot right. by heart, or verses of Tanya, yeah, or chapters of Tanya, yeah, for sure. To uh, you know, it's it's a HEPA filter for the environment, right. Purify, purifies the earth, purifies the world. Words of Torah, um, yeah, that's a very powerful thing. But at the same time, most people, I don't know really of anybody who wears tefillin the whole day. I think there were some, even in like maybe the last century, 
maybe some very, very spiritual holy people that would wear tefillin like, you know, through, maybe not the whole day. I, you wouldn't wear it at night, but it would be like, you know, maybe a few hours as opposed to just for the morning prayers. But yeah, it's uh, a lot of it has to do with concentration, especially with tefillin. I mean, every mitzvah should be concentrated uh, on when, when doing it. But most mitzvah are kind of quicker actions, right? You get tzedakah, boom. For a moment. I mean, it's like there's the action of giving. So that moment is, you know, you're eating something. We talked about that in meditation class last week. So there's mindfulness there. I, you know, there's, there's in the moment. Where in tefillin is a bit of a longer experience. Obviously, prayer is, you know, needs mindfulness. Okay. All right. We're going to wrap up. Um, it's great to see you all. Don't forget tonight, sixth and final lesson. It's a good one. Meditation from Sinai, as well as Thursday at, at noon. We have lunch as well for the Thursday the Thursday in-person group. Um, as a quick uh, teaser for the class, the, 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 the theme of the class is the meditation of the mitzvot. It's meditation to enhance mitz, mitz, mitzvot and mitzvot actions as meditation. And if you're wondering what I just said, come to the class and you'll find out. So it's, it's a powerful class. So that's, that's uh, tonight and Thursday. We also have a brand new course starting next week. Check it out. You be the judge. It is great. You're going to love it. If you like true crime, mystery, and, and civil cases, if you're into like the intersection between law and, and Judaism and ethics and morality and discovery and Talmud study, all of this culminates. If you like wielding a gavel, all of this will culminate. You never know. All this culminates in You Be the Judge starting next Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on Zoom only. And what else is coming up? We've got a lot of other stuff. Check, check the website. I need to check the website to, to remember, but there's a lot of really good stuff coming up, um, including something that's not yet up. This is going to be big. Starting in about three and a half weeks, March 24th. Save the date. It's a Thursday night. It's called The Joy Factory. It's all about positive psychology and Jewish wisdom. It's a one-night workshop led by Mrs. Razel Schusterman, who is Rabbi Schusterman's brother's wife from Peabody, Massachusetts. She's done a few of these very successfully, both locally and, of course, uh, virtually, like on Zoom. So she'll be leading a live joy positivity, happiness workshop, because I think we could all use some of that. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I can. That, I'm looking forward to it. But Rabbi Schusterman's mother-in-law, I think, stepmother, stepmother. let us into the pandemic, so now his, I, I couldn't follow <laughs> the relationship. But it's it's his, sister, his sister-in-law, his sister-in-law. Sister yeah. So that's going to be very a very fun and meaningful thing. It's not up on the website yet. I'm still tweaking the language and then we'll get a design and then we'll put it up. Hopefully in the next few days, you'll see an email on that. Um, okay. All right. That's it for today. It's great to see you all. We'll see you soon. Take care, everybody. Yeah, bye. Take care. Thank you. All right. Pleasure.